Good morning, church. Great to see those of you who are here in person, and welcome to all of you who are joining us virtually this morning. We're in the middle of a, or toward the end of a seven-week series called One Love. This is week six of seven weeks that we have focused on the greatest commandments given by Jesus. We're commandment number one, the greatest of all, is to love the Lord your God with everything you have. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the next commandment, which isn't too far behind the first one, Jesus says, is love your neighbor as yourself. And we're in this pursuit as a church to live into both of these. This is like Christianity 101. The first four Sundays of the year, we focus primarily on what it means to love our God with everything we have. And now last week, today, and next week, we're going to talk about what it means to love our neighbor as yourself. Last week, I spent time in Luke chapter 10, the story known as the, Pro, or, or, uh, the Good Samaritan, where in that story, Jesus shows that Jesus is willing to go to the ditches in life. Jesus is asking us to go to the ditches too, to reach across lines, to care for people. And today I want to spend time in Luke chapter 4. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to Luke chapter 4, which arguably is the chapter that has shaped and formed my ministry more than any other chapter in the Bible. And as you were opening your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, today I want to talk about Jesus on the margins, how Jesus cares for the powerless in the world, and how Jesus calls his church to do the same thing. I, uh, this past Monday, our staff is having a conversation about one of our core values, which is we willingly stand with the marginalized. This is a core value that we're going to spend quite a bit of time with in the life of this church in the month of March. So as a staff, we were talking through this, and it brought back a lot of memories for me. The first year I entered into ministry, it was 20 years ago this summer. I was hired on at a church. I've been on staff at a church ever since. They brought me and a female on staff at a church to be the interim youth ministers while we waited to make a youth ministry hire, which ended up being Jim Hinkle. So I worked with Hinkle as his intern for four, uh, for four weeks, but for about eight months, me and this girl, this other woman, we were, uh, I was 21 years old. She was 23. We were the interim youth ministers at a large church, well over 100 students, just in our high school youth ministry. Week three on the job is when 9-11 happened. Two months into the job is when we were informed by the elders that as a church, we were going to study the role of women in public worship, and that me and this other girl needed to come up with a four-week class to lead high school students through this discussion. Week uh, or month three or four on the job, there was a murder-suicide just across the street from a church, and we had started neighborhood walkers, so we had people going through the neighborhoods around us, which was a more low-income neighborhood where we began uh, developing a lot of different relationships with people. The first three months on that job, it was like, man, are you sure ministry is what you want to do? Sometimes this may not be the easiest thing in the world. And it was then that I developed the practice in my life that when there were stressful days in ministry, when there was criticism that came in ministry, I just wanted to go outside of the church and go hang out with the poor. Because when I was with the poor, and to this day, when I'm with the poor, it recenters my heart and reminds me that it's not just us that has God to take God out in the world, but often it's when we go to the margins that we discover who God is and where God is. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And when you see Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is going to give you a great picture of what the heart of God is like. I want to thank you just for a moment. I want to thank you as a church, and many of you joining us virtually, who, who 11 months ago, you may not have known who Sycamore View was, but you have stayed connected to us. 
Right now in our 8.30 service, on average in the year 2021, we have around 60 people. So it's a smaller crowd in here at 8.30, very well spaced out. And there are people who have said, is it hard for you to preach to a small crowd of 50 to 60 people? In which my response is, for 15 weeks, I preached in front of a camera. I'll take 12. I don't care. I mean, it was me and Justin Ardry, and Justin was running between two cameras while he was also giving me courtesy head nods every once in a while to make it look like he was engaged. I think Justin responded to all 15 of those sermons because I made him. I just needed some kind of response from people. Our 11 o'clock service right now this year, we're averaging right at about 100 people in those services. And online every Sunday, we're averaging about 520 screens who are with us every Sunday. And that's not just views, so it's not just people who scroll through Facebook and they just kind of, they just come across our, our, uh, our worship service for three seconds. Those are 520 screens that are actually staying with us for a little while. So according to preacher math, if we have around 60 in early service, around 100 in late service and 520, we have about a 3,000 member church right now or something like that. I just want to thank you for staying connected to us in this season. I mean, it feels like I'm in daily conversations, probably weekly conversations, as we continue to navigate this pandemic and what re-engagement looks like in the life of our church. And many of us are moving at different paces, but thank you. And I thank God for how God is holding us together. Um, have you ever changed your mind about something? Have you ever changed your mind about the way you do your hair? Some of you have probably had, there's been a time in your life where your hair was longer, your hair was shorter. Times when you had bangs, or perms, or dreads, or mullets? Have you ever changed your mind about food or hobbies or whether you're going to watch the Super Bowl or not? Which, by the way, the Super Bowl is tonight. How many of you don't know who is playing in the Super Bowl? Just a show of hands. That's okay. That's good. How many of you ever changed your mind about people? Sometimes overnight, you change your mind about someone, maybe like someone like a Kevin Spacey or a Bill Cosby, or maybe you changed your, your mind about someone over, and it was a span of time, like over a year or so, you realize your mind had been changed about a person. And in Luke chapter 4, you see this happen so quickly in the life of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 4, I want you to see just three verses at the same time. And here's, here's what they are. They're on the screen right now. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 15, here's what it says. Jesus was, in the, was teaching in their synagogue, and everyone praised him. This isn't just one synagogue. A lot of different synagogues around the countryside, everyone praised him. Luke 4, 22, all spoke well of him. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And according to Luke, this wasn't days, weeks, months later, minutes later. What you read in verse 28 is all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and they drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Just like that, their minds had changed about Jesus. I've been in settings before, probably in this church. I've been asked to speak in other places where conversations and the topics they gave me were going to be somewhat controversial. But I knew like the worst that was going to come at me, maybe passive aggressive or aggressive social media posts or maybe anonymous letters, maybe a few upset people. But I, I've never thought to myself, if I preach this message, they're going to throw me off the Mississippi Bridge, the bridge into the Mississippi River. I've never thought that. And in a moment, Jesus goes from being loved by everyone, they're ready to kill him. 
just like that. And here's what happened. Here's how it all went down. If you go all the way back to verse 13, here's what it says. When the devil had finished all this tempting, this is 40 days Jesus was in the desert or wilderness, depending if you're reading Matthew or Luke. After 40 days, the devil had finished all this tempting, and some of your versions, all this testing. He left him, the devil left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And I want to pause right there because I love this right here. This has given me a way to pray over you over the last few weeks as I've been diving deeper into Luke chapter 4. That there are times when testing in your life, when you go through those deserts and those wilderness times in your life where there's testing and there's tempting, that those are moments when the Spirit of God is going to empower you, equip you, prepare you. So sometimes moments of testing are moments of God's empowerment. And I can only hope and pray that over the last year of our lives, as we've gone through a pandemic and all this other stuff happening in our world, that this is a season where the Spirit of God is empowering God's church. That the same thing that happened to Jesus when Jesus was in the wilderness and desert is the same thing that is happening to Jesus' church. We are being tested. We're going through a hard time. The Spirit of God is empowering us in ways we may not even know right now. In verse 15, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and everyone praised him. It was teaching in which they were praising him. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus hadn't performed, that, that we read about, even though this may have happened up until this point, what Luke has let you know is that Jesus is a great teacher. There have been no miracles yet. It was teaching that was drawing people in to this day. Deep inside of the human heart is a desire to be taught, to be taught something new, something fresh, to be seekers of truth, seekers of who God is. And then you get to this in verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his, his custom. And Jesus stood up to read. Every male who went into synagogues at some point would have this responsibility, to step up and read. Jesus stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it. And we don't know if he was unrolling it to the spot where the church had been reading for weeks or days, or if Jesus went and found this spot. I think Jesus went and found it. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is straight from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, fixed on him. And he began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Now, let me just try to help set the scene here real quick. Jesus is his hometown. This is where he grew up. So most likely he knew most of the people attending synagogue that day. It's a Sabbath day, and as was his custom. This is just what Jesus did. It's what Jesus' parents did. When there were festivals, they went to Jerusalem. When it was Sabbath day, they had their practices. Jesus went to synagogue. He went to Sabbath. He unrolls a scroll. He reads it. And Jesus and everyone else who was listening that day knew Isaiah 61, but they interpreted it differently. They both read it, 
They both wanted to see what would come from it. They both were waiting for a Messiah to come. Uh, there was anticipation of God. Jesus had anticipation that Isaiah 61 would be fulfilled one day. And then all these other people had anticipation that Isaiah 61 would be fulfilled one day. And then they talk about this being Joseph's son. And first day, right here in the synagogue, Jesus' public ministry... Here's what happens in verse 23. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Those are outsiders, Gentiles. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through it, right through the crowd, and went on his way. Welcome to your first day of ministry, Jesus. This is how it went down. Jesus and all the people had Isaiah 61 on their radar, but they interpreted it differently. They thought that it was going to be fulfilled differently. They both were anticipating the movement of God. The first core value you read on our website is that as a church, we want to anticipate the movement of God. So when we come into a worship service or you join us in a worship experience, I don't just want us to step into a place. I want us to come ready and anticipating not only that God's going to do something to our own hearts and minds, but that God's going to move in the lives of people around us. So Jesus had anticipation of the movement of God that was happening in the world. The people around had an anticipation, yet anticipation that is unchecked, unchecked anticipation can sometimes become about what I want the kingdom of God to look like and not what God is making the kingdom of God out to be. They had a mindset for them. So many people around them, their mindset was this, Let's clean stuff up. Let's clean up people. Let's clean up the city. Let's clean up the temple. And if we can clean things up, and we can make things look really neat, then the Messiah is going to want to come and be a part of this. The Messiah is going to want to come and be a part of how neat we have made the world. So for them to do that, For them to try to clean up people and clean up synagogues and clean up the temple, they had to remove anything that looked messy, which was the poor and the sinners, prostitutes, the sick. They didn't want beggars by synagogues and temples. It would make people feel guilty when they came to connect with God. So we're going to move them to the margins, move them to the outskirts of the cities. And aren't you glad God didn't do this to us? That God's message to us isn't, can you clean yourself up a little bit? And once you clean yourself up and make things a little neat, then I will come and establish myself in your life. That God doesn't say, can you prove to me that you can be clean for three months, and then I will come and establish myself in your life. Instead, God, when we were at our worst, stepped into your life, stepped into the world, when we were at our worst, this is who God is. The God who goes to the margins to meet and connect with people. 
This is what our God is like. There was a Harvard biologist, Edward Wilson, who began performing experiments years ago on ants. Now, sometimes I wonder, what makes people curious that they want to study certain things? I don't know why he was studying ants. But what he found as he was studying ants is that when an ant dies, all his other friends and family, they don't see death. Ants smell death. So an ant may be dead for a few days in an ant little farm, and no one else knows it's dead until it begins to decompose, and then there's a smell of death. And when there's a smell of death, all the other ant friends will pick it up and take it out to, let's just call it an ant cemetery, outside of the group. So this biologist, after many, many tries, came up with an acid that was the same acid that comes off or comes out of dead ants. This oleic acid. And and what this uh, biologist would do is he would take a small little piece of paper and put this acid on it. And sure enough, the ants would pick up the piece of paper and take it out to the ant cemetery. And then the biologist decided to do something a little further than that, like take an experiment just a little a little more, he wanted to see what, what would happen if he took the acid and put it on a, a live ant, an ant that was alive. And sure enough, the ant's friends would pick it up and carry it out to the ant cemetery with legs and antennas moving all over the place. And then the ant would come back into the ant village, and then they would pick it up and take it back out to the cemetery thinking it was dead. And this just kept happening until all of the acid had been removed from an ant's body where they would be accepted back into the community. That's crazy, right? Yeah, we do this all the time in our world. Which is, man, something that's messy. We've just gotta, we've got to push it to the margins. And this is what happens. There are those who say that Luke chapter 4 is a thesis for the rest of the gospel of Luke and for the book of Acts. There are those who say that Luke 4 is like a table of contents. That this is the foundation, not just for Jesus' life and ministry, not just for what Jesus is going to be about, but what Jesus taught his apostles and his church to be about. That Isaiah 61 is still being fulfilled in and through Jesus' church, where God has anointed us, to take good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, give sight to the blind, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that we are those called by God to be givers of joy and hope hunters and justice seekers. This is who we are called to be. And there are times where people will say, Josh, or teacher, or preacher, or pastor, when we come to church, we just want to hear we just want to hear people talk about the gospel. And usually what people say is, when they, what they mean by that is, can you just talk about the gospel? Let's take the gospel or evangelism seriously, and let's not hear about all the other things happening in the world. In which I want to help share with people and help equip people that it, for the church, it's never evangelism versus justice. It's never do we take evangelism seriously, but not what's happening in the world seriously, or vice versa. The church is called to hold these together, that we are are called to invite people into the heart of God, in and through the cross, to be baptized into Christ, to be uh, brought into the church, a family of God, and we are called to care about what's happening in the world.
In Memphis, Tennessee, 27% of Memphis residents and 45% of children in the city live under the poverty line. Of the 35 largest metropolitan areas, countries, uh, the 35 largest metropolitan areas in our country, Memphis ranks the highest in economic segregation, families in poverty, obesity, high blood pressure, and transportation costs per median household. Now, there are those who sometimes have myths that they believe about the poor, that the poor are lazy, and the poor just want handouts, in which my initial response is, are there lazy poor people in our city? Probably there, there are some. Are there lazy middle-class people in our city? Yeah. Are there lazy upper-class people in our city? Yeah. And as one who has lived among the poor now for a decade, I have story after story after story of people who don't fit those myths. People who work hard, care about their families, and they've just been dealt some hard cards in life. And something I love about Luke chapter 4 is Luke chapter 4 has something to say to you. Like what Jesus does for you and what Jesus has done for you. And Luke 4 also has something to teach us about what Jesus thinks about the world. And Luke 4 helps us understand that there's individual responsibility, but that there's also things that are happening and systems all throughout the world that the church needs to understand a little bit about how they work. Because if God is for the powerless, the issue isn't does the church care about the powerless, it's how do we care about the powerless? Like, how do we, how do we live this out? And if Luke 4 doesn't mess with you just a little bit, then I encourage you to read Luke 4 again. Because Luke 4 is one of those places in the Bible that shouldn't mess with us until the day we die. Early on in my marriage, this is probably 16 years ago, maybe 17 years ago, Casey and I had, we were doing ministry in a smaller church out in West Texas, and there was a youth minister at the church who became, he and his family became one of our best friends. And this was a couple friend that there were, there were a number of nights where we would just cry out to God together, seeking God for our lives. They ended up going to New Zealand to be missionaries, and it was through seasons of prayer and fasting that, that God was using us to challenge each other. So there was one prayer time we had with our friends that we decided. In that prayer time, we said, you know what? We, we felt like we needed to do something for the world. And the challenge we gave each other is the next time we bought a new or newer car, instead of trading a car in, we were going to give a car away. So we made this challenge to each other. Next time you buy a newer, newer car, you're giving your Suburban, your SUV away. And next time Casey and I buy a newer, newer car, we're going to give our car away. And the commitment was, if the cars are broken down, we're not going to give those away. I don't think that would be a good gift or, or, or an expression of generosity from God. So we, Casey and I ended up giving away a car. We bought a newer CRV uh, a couple of years later, and we gave away a car that only had about 30,000 miles on it, 30,000 uh, miles on it. And our friends, one Christmas, decided it was time they were going to get a newer car, and they had an SUV they were going to give away. They identified a single mother with two kids. And we decided that we weren't just going to give away an SUV. 
It was around Christmas time. She had two smaller children. So we filled that SUV up with hundreds of dollars of groceries, hundreds of dollars of toys. And we showed up at the house and we took all this stuff inside. There was not enough room in the freezer or fridge to hold all the groceries we bought for them. They didn't have much, room, much more room in their apartment to hold all the toys that we gave them. And if I had a chance to do it all over again, not that I feel like God was angry how we did it, but here's what I would do different. I think the four of us would have gone to the house and handed the keys to the mother and had told her that this is a gift in the name of Jesus. And then we would have somehow let the mother know where all the gifts were that she could give her own children. Because there's sometimes dignity that needs to be given to the less fortunate for them to care for themselves. Like I think if I had it to do over again, and this is a challenge that I have in my life now annually, I need to do things throughout the year for people less fortunate than me that will never make a social media post and that will never make it into a sermon I preach on a Sunday. Because I need to know that the God in me isn't just the God who wants to take God into the neighborhoods all over Memphis, but the God in me is also the God in the other. That it's not just that I need the poor because of what I have to give the poor, but I need to be with the less fortunate because when I am, I learn so much about God. And one thing I love about Luke chapter 4, when Jesus stands up and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, 2,000 years later when we read this, the way we read it is, today this is fulfilled in our hearing. That today never becomes yesterday and it doesn't become tomorrow. So this week as we live out our lives, we have a chance to encounter how God implements the truths of Luke chapter 4 in our own lives and we get a chance to be about how God is declaring that today, the truth of Jesus coming into the world and all Jesus brings, right, this is being fulfilled among us. And it helps me to know that whether you are rich or poor, white, black, or brown, entrance into the kingdom of God isn't based on status or generational wealth. It's not based on resumes. All of us move to God through the same cross. All of us move to God through the same waters of baptism. All of us connect with God through the bread and the cup. We're going to move to the communion here in just a moment after watching about a minute video. This is this inspirational video about God bringing all people together. And if there's a need in your life today, we will have an elder outside of this room to receive you if you go out this room to the right. And on our website, sycamoreview.org, we have a connect card. And there, just go to the connect card. There are a lot of boxes you can check, ways you can let us know how we can care for you and come along to serve you. And most importantly, I think, there are two boxes. One is if you're interested in being baptized just to know what it means, we would love to follow up with you about that. Or if there's any way we can pray for you, let us know how we can do that. Let's direct our eyes to the screen, and this will help guide us to the table this morning.